Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're really glad you are visiting. Great to have you here today. Uh, I will acknowledge the bear in the room in a second. But first, as kind of an aside, let me just say, like, I loved singing Abide With Me With You. Uh, I loved especially that it was the correct tune. I have this tension sometimes, because sometimes being over here from a different country, you guys, you move the tunes around. I'm like, I'm not happy. But, but what's special to me about this one is it has this weird tradition back home. It, it's sung before the FA Cup final, this huge soccer match every single year. So 80,000 fans in a stadium come together and sing Abide With Me. And so there's always this incredible image of like this 300 pound English guy who's like two pints in working on three, kind of like just, just there roaring out, help of the helpless Lord, abide with me. And you're like, do you know what you're singing? But I'm so glad you are singing it. It just has this incredible vibe. What an incredible hymn. We're in the series on emotion. And today we get to talk about fear. And a few, uh, maybe a month ago, maybe a year ago now, I brought my pal Red Bow Bear here. He was going to be on stage for the whole time, uh, but Aaron didn't want to share the stage with him for worship. He said he couldn't take himself seriously leading worship with a smiling bear next to him. And even Teresa objected to sharing the stage with him for announcements, but he's here now. Um, and, And he speaks to a process that goes on in our brains. When we think about fear, first of all, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about a biological process, something that is happening within you. There is a moment where you encounter something that is fearful and your brain kicks into gear. Uh, it is to imagine what it is, to, to kind of get a grip of it, is to, to imagine just sitting next to a bear and all the emotions that you might feel. And because the internet has everything, we can now see what this looks like because this photographer was out just hanging out by a river and who should wander into the scene but this giant bear who simply came to be involved in what was going on. No real threat. He's just there to hang out. And so the clip is a little longer than I remembered. I was like watching it by myself the first time, not with hundreds of you. Uh, but he will in a second just, just take a seat. What is your response when a bear wanders in to the scene? For some of you, it's flight and then like flight, right? I'm going to run away. I'm going to get out of here. And then for a couple of you who are hunters out there, you're like, just give me a chance. I will take this guy down. There's not going to be any problems. And yet it seems in this moment, there's nothing to be scared about. He just, he just wants to be there. In actual fact, you don't need to be afraid of this bear, it seems, just like I would suggest for those of you that are, you don't need to be afraid of this bear either. He's pretty, pretty harmless. This is the brain response that is going on when we encounter something like this. We have this thing called the amygdala, which perceives fear. It can do that in a couple of ways. It can do it really slowly or intelli- and intelligently, or it can do it really quickly when it needs to. And so the reason it does that is this. When you encounter something dangerous, 
there's a couple of potential consequences. Supposing you're wandering along a pathway and, and you don't see a bear, this time you see a snake or what you assume to be a snake. And so your brain kicks into gear, your amygdala files, and you jump out of the way as quickly as you can. Now, it could be that what you see isn't a snake, it's actually a garden hosepipe. It's very normal, very undangerous. But here's the thing, the reason your amygdala has to fire so quickly is this. There are different levels of consequences to seeing a hosepipe and thinking it's a snake than there are to seeing a snake and thinking it's a hosepipe. The first one makes you look a little bit silly. The second one can get you killed. You jump and react quickly. You're like, oh, it's just a hosepipe. You feel a bit foolish even if you're by yourself. When it's actually a snake, you have to get out of the way quickly or you might die. Your brain works to protect you. It is a safety mechanism. It is really important. But then there's another thing that takes place, which is this prefrontal cortex activity, which is to say there is a danger. Danger is here. Is it really? Do I need to react to this moment. I'd love to tell you a story about the first time I got to go on a mission trip. I didn't get the sanitized experience of a mission trip that many teenagers get. I'd been abroad a couple of times, actually only to ski, which is not particularly dangerous, except because some people are bad at skiing. But in this, in this trip, I, I didn't get to go with a wise, caring youth pastor who said, I'm going to plan everything to mitigate the dangers. I, I went with a couple of other pastors who were not good at planning trips. So we got to the airport. I didn't even have a ticket with my correct name on it. Somehow managed to get a six-hour flight and then a nine-hour flight, then a one-hour flight and a 10-hour boat ride to this island in the southern Philippines. Turns out when we got there, there was an uprising going on. So the southern half of the island was trying to overtake the northern part of the island where we were staying. So arriving in town, we were told, we can't stay in the village you were going to stay in. We're going to move you to a city because you'll be safer there. So I said, okay, whatever you think is best. And I remember this moment, the first night lying there and all I could hear was bang, 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 bang. And there's just this sound of gunfire. Now they'd warned us, they are kidnapping Western tourists right now to hold you for ransom. And I can hear what I think is gunfire. I have this sense of the danger that is coming. And I'm about 10 years younger than everyone else on the trip. So lying there, I look to my older friends to give me some wise advice. And I say, guys, I hear gunfire. What should we do? And they said, we should pray. And I said, do you have any better ideas? Like, do you, do you have any like practical solutions that might help? Again, I was only 19. I may have answered differently now. It's up to you to figure that out. But I had this moment of saying, like, what, is that it? And for the next however long, I lay there processing exactly this question. My amygdala telling me danger is here. And, and then my brain, the rest of my brain processing, is it really? What, what should we do? Is there an action we should take? It turns out, and I know that I have a habit of leaving you hanging with stories and not completing them. I will complete this one. It turns out that simply it was the chef for the conference we were holding for all the local pastors who had chosen 11 o'clock in the evening to use a machete to chop up a cow, something that you rarely say in America, and, and that was what the sound was. It was nothing to worry about. Actually, my prefrontal cortex could have safely said, there is no danger here, you are fine. We have this brain process that works when we encounter something that we might be fearful of. Occasionally you meet people that you're like, do you actually have 
this process. This is my son Jude. He loves to climb stuff. And, and he was told by his sister just the other day, uh, don't climb this, it's scary. And Jude turned around and said, it's not scary for me. He's got this sense of, no, I'm going to be fine. This picture will cause anxiety. For some of you, this is Alex Hanold, free solo climbing El Capitan. Uh, he has no ropes. He is just there, thousands of feet above the ground, just doing his thing and making it happen. His brain is fascinating. He goes all over the world and does these things. So on one level, people don't understand why he does this and how he does this. His traveling companion, Jimmy Chin, says that there are villages in parts of the world that are not regularly visited that actually believe Alex is a witch of some kind because they're like, why? how can you do this? This is not possible. Nobody does these things. But scientists have looked at him and said, I don't think your amygdala is functioning at all. <laughs> I question if you have one, because this isn't how somebody should operate. So they put him in a machine to scan his brain, and what they discovered was fascinating. He does have an amygdala, and it works great, but his prefrontal cortex works great as well. So when he experiences something that he might be fearful of, he asks a couple of questions. And this is a picture of him just staring out, fear in the face. It's a verb that is known as hanolding now because he's the only person crazy enough to do it. He asks these questions. Is it true? Is the fear true? The situation, how I'm understanding it, that anxiety, is it true? And then is it helpful? He knows that when he's climbing something like this, anxiety is not his friend. Fear is not his friend. It will make him worse at what he's trying to do, and the chances of him falling become greater. His companion I just mentioned, Jimmy Chin, says this, fear is always there. It's a survival instinct. You just need to know how to manage it. When we talk about fear, we are talking about a response events around us. Something happens. A bear wanders into the scene and sits in a chair and we have to decide, is there a response to this or am I overreacting? Oh, that it were that simple, right? We just know that it isn't. One psychologist said this about fear as an emotion. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, deep down at our cause, there are only two emotions, love and fear. All positive emotions come from love or negative or difficult emotions, they come from fear. Doesn't that tap into the story we began all this with, this garden story, this Adam and Eve story? We watch as Eve encounters and converses with this serpent with no obvious sign of fear. Fear is an afterwards response, an afterwards emotion. What we see is this fall, we have emotions before it, but the fall introduces what you might call emotional suffering. And C.S. Lewis once said, fear of all emotions is, is the worst in terms of the experience. It is painful to anticipate, painful to experience, and painful to remember. It is all negative. Part of the reason we're tapping into this series on emotions and just a couple of weeks left before we get to Easter is there's this idea that feelings bring us new data that is missing when only thoughts are trusted. I would suggest to you this. Understanding our emotions is part of the work of formation. One psychologist looked at Jesus' life and said there are 39 distinct emotions in Jesus' life and he was incredibly emotionally healthy. When we work hard to become emotionally healthy people, we actually become more 
like Jesus. We are more shaped in his way and more suited to live in the world around us. So as we process this emotion of fear, one of the things I think you'll see is this. There are loads of emotions we experience that we may struggle to identify. Really, fear is what we're experiencing. Sometimes you might be sad, but really what you're experiencing is fear. You might be angry, but really what you're experiencing is fear. Somewhere it seems like fear is the cause of so many of the negative and difficult emotions that we struggle with. And I would suggest, while there's that brain response, fear often leads to another emotion that just statistically, I would say 40% of us would admit to struggling with regularly. So let's jump into this story about a guy called Abraham and see how fear relates to this secondary emotion that I'll unveil in a second. Genesis chapter 20 verse 1 to 2. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. If you don't know who Abraham is, that's absolutely fine. Fine. Abraham is really the first person that the Jewish story is heavily based on. It's regularly described as Abraham's family. God calls him and has him move very rare for the time from one geographical location to another. And he now finds himself living amongst a group of people that he does not know. This is a fairly new thing for this biblical story. There's the beginning when everyone lives in the same area and now we're further on in the journey and lots of people live in lots of different spaces, different languages, now different religions and Abraham encounters this new group of people. For a while he stayed in Gerar and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerah, sent for Sarah and took her. Now this, I've got to admit, if you're new to the Bible, is weird language. This doesn't fit in our current understanding of what societies look like. A man comes into a city. He has a beautiful woman with him. And he says, she's my sister because he's worried that people will kill him so they can take his wife. They take her anyway, but he feels like his life is going to be preserved and that for him he describes as a win. Then Abimelech, king of Greer, sent for Sarah and he took her. What happens next in the story? God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Where does the story go from here? Now Abimelech had not gone near us, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Abimelech is kind of saying, in terms of the customs of the day, everything I did is above board. I have operated in good faith. There shouldn't be any punishment here. And interestingly, God seems to agree with him. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live but if you do not return, you may be sure that all who belong to you will die. It's a fascinating story in which the person who is purported to be this word prophet, this man of God, acts in a way that is out of keeping with God's character. And the other guy acts more according with God's character. It doesn't fit all of our expectations of what a story in the Bible should look like. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. 
Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Literally, it could be summed up in one, one, one sentence. Like, what the heck? What are you doing? This isn't fair. This isn't right. You shouldn't have done these things. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And Abraham is going to give a reason, but I think his reason needs a little bit of unpacking. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham essentially says, I was afraid, I was fearful. I had a moment where a bear came out of the woods and I just responded accordingly. See this as an act of self-preservation. I was just doing what needed to be done. You might argue Abraham experiences circumstances to which fear is a natural response. He doesn't know these people. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same religion. He is fearful for his life, so he takes steps to make sure he gets to keep on living. The most basic instinct of all human beings. Throughout the Old Testament, it's probably important to note this word fear is kind of up for grabs because it can be one of two words. We would translate it fear, but both of them fear, but they are two separate words. One is the word yura, which means the fear of God, respect and awe, this idea that God is above and beyond us. The other one is the word yare, which is the fear of what might happen, terror of the moment. And you see both of them in this passage. There is a moment where Abraham says, you guys don't fear God, you don't respect him, you don't obey him. Ironically, it's Abraham that's kind of treading some weird lines with God right there. And so because of who you are, because I don't trust you, I became fearful. I acted out of fear. I acted as you would expect someone to act. When there is a bear in the room, it is terrifying. You go into self-preservation mood, fight or flight. You just do what you have to do to survive. Except Abraham's lying. This isn't a fear thing. This isn't a reaction thing. He planned this all along. I would suggest Abraham isn't acting out of fear. Certainly not fear in the sense of his amygdala is firing and he has to figure out what to do instantly. Look at this part of the story. He does come clean a little bit later. When God made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. This isn't even the first time Abraham has tried this trick. He tried it when they were Egypt and it worked badly then as well. He's now in this repeated pattern where he has made this decision. No, I'm gonna lie. He's in this repeated pattern where he has an imagination of just how bad the story can get. He expects it to go badly, so he acts accordingly. He's not operating out of fear, I would suggest Abraham is operating where so many of us and me and myself operate, he's operating out of anxiety. Abraham experiences circumstances that make fear a natural response, but it is anxiety that leads him to act as he does. He has a pre-recording of just where this is going to go. I'm gonna get to this town, they're gonna look at my wife, they're gonna realize she's attractive and realize that if they kill me, they can take 
her. Again, completely foreign to our culture, but for that time, absolutely considered normal behaviour. He has this understanding of just where the story will go, and he plays it over and over again in his mind. And haven't we been where Abraham is? Okay, you probably haven't had the exact scenario You probably haven't wandered into a town and met a load of people and been concerned that they might think that they can take your wife from you or your husband from you. You haven't gone through that exact thing. But haven't you and I done the thing where we have like a pre-recording or an imagination of just what's going to happen in a certain scenario? We almost expect it before it happens. Isn't that the difference between like anxiety and fear. It's that feeling that you get when there's like a job interview coming up. There's just a lurking feeling in the pit of your stomach. If I had to describe somewhat the difference between fear and anxiety, fear is the moment you're walking through a forest or a piece of woodland and a bear jumps out of you and everything responds in your brain. Anxiety is the feeling of starting the walk and spending the whole of the time just wondering, when is this bear going to appear? And what am I going to do when he gets there? It's the expectation that there's something just around the corner that we, we just don't know how to deal with. It's the expectation that the story won't be good, the story won't be what we hoped it will be. It's the expectation that we just aren't sure that God really cares about our personal story. He's really interested in us. We fear the story won't be good and there's that lurking suspicion, even when there is no bear, that one is just just around the corner. What do we do with that? What do we do with our anxiety? What do we do with that constant sense, that waking up in the middle of the night, trying to figure out every situation that you can with a relationship, every situation you can in family life, every situation with your business, with your work life, every situation that you have with the broken car or the the car that you're sure is going to break at any moment and cost you an absolute fortune. It can be all sorts of things, but anxiety, I would suggest, is Everywhere, And I may be helpful at this point to to define it maybe just a little bit more. And and firstly, to say anxiety is incredibly complex. I can speak into the spiritual component of it, but I'm not a psychologist or I'm not a counsellor. There's loads of people that have more wisdom on how this works physiologically and everything. But how do we deal with this, especially as a spiritual component? So a couple of things. So someone, wise person said this, anxiety is at once a function of biology and philosophy, body and mind, instinct and, and reason, personality and culture. It is so broad, has so many different dynamics, but maybe this helps you narrow it down a little bit. This helped me figure it out a bit in my mind. It's a psychological phenomenon and a sociological phenomenon. It's going on in your brain and it's all around you. And so to think in computer terms, it's both a hardware problem We have this wiring that is somewhat prone to go bad, this sudden imagination that there's fear around the corner, and a software problem. I run faulty logic programs that make me think anxious thoughts. If you think about it, if you struggle with anxiety, you may be honest and say, I see a pattern in myself. There's that moment where my body doesn't do quite what I think it should feel maybe like something that could feel like a a lump or something. And I start to imagine just what that could mean. And before I know it, I'm really far down the road of, I've got this thing and it's probably life-threatening. And I can probably see that there's this scenario where just a few months it's going to get really bad and we start to play that tape over and over again. Maybe it's a relationship. I'm in this relationship and I can start to see the same patterns I've experienced before. 
And just like everybody else has done, this person in a while is going to leave me because they always do. We start to see the same pattern really quickly. Maybe it's in society, I've got to meet some new people and they probably won't get me. They probably won't like me. And so you start to imagine really quickly the scenarios and how they'll play out. It's not Abraham, it's not his exact story, but it is his response. We already know where this is going. We already have this sense that the worst will happen. So many of us have those cycles that if we're honest, we play over and over again. In 2019, the number of people that expressed having regular feelings of anxiety was 15%. In 2020, 40% of adults experienced anxiety. Can you think of anything that may have happened to get us to that point? In actual fact, there's a number of things, right? There's traveling through a pandemic together. There's traveling through huge national questions, elections, race, all of those different things, all of those different tensions. There's now a war going on, although there's been multiple wars going on on multiple fronts. Sometimes we just let those bypass us, but now there's one that has grabbed our attention. Can you see why we have so many anxious thoughts? Only to add those to the personal experiences that each and every one of us have. Anxiety is an epidemic in our country. And some people would say this, one of the worst things about anxiety is this. It makes us narcissistically preoccupied with ourselves. If we're honest, in moments of anxiety, everything is centered around what will happen to me and people I care about. Just psychologically, this to me was fascinating. If I was to tell you tomorrow there will be an earthquake that will kill 500,000 people, and I was to tell you that tomorrow I'm going to cut off the end of one of your fingers, you will lose more sleep over the second one than you will over the first one. Just by nature of who we are as people, when, P, when things affect us, we are far more concerned about them, even if the other event is huge and massive and affects everybody in the world. We are wired, it seems, or preoccupied on some level with ourselves. C.S. Lewis said this, there is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against God. He wants men to be concerned with what they do, how they act in the world around them. Anxiety wants them thinking about what will happen to them. When we move from fear, there is a bear to anxiety. What's going to happen to me? We tend to become so preoccupied with ourselves. It's almost impossible for us to engage with the God of the universe on any real level. We spend all of our time thinking about this, our worth, our health, our safety, our future. And we even begin to question God's love. Does he even care? Is he even watching? What is going on in this story? Why isn't he acting in a way that I think he should act. This isn't an Abraham story. This isn't an Alex story. This is, this is a human story. This is most of us at different points in our life. Part of the reason I would suggest it's so hard to engage with God when we are in moments of anxiety is this. I would suggest that fear and trust are pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum. When it comes to our relationship with God, we can either fear or we can trust. We can't do both. In our relationships with each other, we can either fear or we can trust. We can't do both. Now, you may be in a relationship that's toxic and there is good reason not to trust, but 
Even in good relationships, we walk that spectrum. Do I trust this person? Do I read the best possible intentions into how they are acting? Or do I have all of these sort of reasons behind the scenes that they may be doing all of these things just to ruin my life in some particular way? They seem like they are opposite ends of the spectrum, fear and trust, and it seems like we have to choose. To make it even more complicated, there's this weird little phrase in the verse in the Bible that says this, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. I don't know about you. That has the temptation to make me more anxious. <laughs> Suddenly, I'm trying really hard not to be anxious. And maybe you've carried that burden. Maybe you've carried that burden that in actual fact, God is displeased with you. God is not happy with the amount of anxiety you carry. God just wishes that you would respond in a better way to all of life's circumstances. Maybe you've carried that in church communities and have been read by well-meaning people. Do not be anxious about anything. And you've said, oh, but I'm trying. I really am. Is this just a thing we're supposed to try harder with? Are we supposed to take this away and say, no, I'm going to work really hard not to be anxious this week? Or is there a better way? So here's a question that I have to move us forward. How does Jesus deal with anxiety? And he does deal with anxiety. As Jesus approaches this week that we are beginning to approach, this week we call Passion Week, this week that begins with a triumphant entry and a celebration and moves forward through struggle, through emotional turmoil into death and then on to resurrection. One of the constant emotions I would suggest we see in Jesus, the ones that come up regularly, is this emotion of anxiety. In John 13, 21, we're told, as he gathered with his earliest followers to gather at this table that we'll gather at this morning, Jesus was troubled in spirit. In this moment, Jesus begins to unpack for them again just exactly what he is about to go through. In this moment, he gathers and he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. In this moment, he takes blood or wine and he says, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. Jesus has walked them through what is coming time and time again and they never seem to get it. They never quite understand that this is where the story is going. And yet, even though they don't understand that this is where the story is going, I would suggest that they themselves are anxious too. This may be the most anxiety-ridden meal of all time. Everybody is feeling the pressure of the moment. This story seems to be coming to its climax. It seems like the tensions in the city are getting more and more notable. Jesus is getting more and more attacks from religious leaders. The Romans are looking at him with suspicion. And so for every single one of them, there is a sense of anxiety. We start to see it in Jesus and we can imagine it in his earliest followers. Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me. And they begin to react with a sense of, no, it's not going to be me. But perhaps we would look at that and read it that there's a suspicion somewhere in each of their own hearts that it might actually be them. Maybe really deep down, each of them has that potential, that tendency to be that one. Yes, it's Judas in the end, but it seems like somewhere it could have been any of them at different points. They gather at this table and they sit and in the moment of anxiety, in the moment of struggle about what exactly, where exactly the story is going, they sit and they take bread 
and they take wine and Jesus unpacks exactly where his story is going. And then in the midst of hearing that, in the midst of the struggle for these first disciples who are hearing that their their rabbi, their master will die, there's this moment where they do something that I find to be so unusual, except it's just one of the Passover rituals. They sing a hymn before they go out to pray. Now, for those of you that are like, we should only sing hymns and new songs are terrible. Maybe this is your like go-to verse. You're like, Aaron, I just want you to read this. Just, they sang hymns. We should only sing hymns. Try and lose the new songs if you can. But that isn't what this means. This is this process of them singing a specific group of Psalms that have some words that are fascinating. Psalm 118 is probably the last one they would have sung. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Do they believe that in this moment? They're going out secretly into the night, running away from Roman soldiers, from Jewish leaders. There seems to them hiding away from everything that is happening to them in this moment. Do they believe that God is good? When they hear Jesus describe where the story is going, do they believe that God is good? Can they sing this in this moment of anxiety with any legitimacy? And yet they sing it anyway. As they leave, they take a walk out to a place that it seems they have prayed often and together. And there we see Jesus at possibly his most vulnerable point. He took Peter, James and John along with him. Isn't it fascinating as a side note on anxiety that somewhere in this moment, Jesus includes his friends in the... It's delightful. (laughs) What was that? I need to know that piece of music. It's, uh, It's going to be stuck in my head all day. Peter, James, and John, he takes along and he brings two friends into his anxiety. He brings them into his conversation. Maybe as an aside that it says to us that maybe we should do the same. He models that for us, even though his friends are awful and don't understand him and completely miss the point. He still chooses this and he reveals to them in his vulnerability, he is deeply distressed and troubled. The message version translates it like this. He sank into a pit of suffocating darkness. He told them, I feel bad enough right now to die. Stay here and keep vigil with me. That language of just watch, just keep me company in this lowest point. Another modern translation says that he fell into a sinkhole of emotion. Maybe you've seen those pictures in either newspapers or on the internet or on TV news. You've seen what it is to see a a piece of land suddenly drop away with no warning whatsoever. A hole forms in the ground and suddenly the things that were unstable ground are no longer unstable ground. That's how one writer chooses to translate, translate Jesus' experience in this moment. He was unstable ground and now he isn't. Now he's lost in this deep, emotion, this anxiety that seems to have the potential to consume him. In my experience of churches, we have these two very strange tendencies and different churches seem to fall into different patterns. There are some churches that push into Jesus' humanity to the point that they say he wasn't really God. And it robs the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus of all of its power and purposefulness. The point of death and resurrection is that it changes everything. God has staked 
everything on his son and what he does in the world. But the other strange tendency that has just as many problems is we tend to push into this idea of divinity at the expense of humanity. We sanitize everything that Jesus is going through in this moment because we say this, well, he was really God. It can't have affected him in quite the same way. He knew where the story was going. It can't have been that hard. We take some of the humanity away. And yet what we see here in this moment is we see Jesus in his most vulnerable. We see Jesus in this moment of suffocating darkness, this moment of the sinkhole. And maybe you've sat there too. Maybe you've been in that moment where you're like, I just feel like everything, the firm footing underneath me has just fallen away and I don't know where I am or where I stand. What do I do in that moment? I would suggest in that moment, we do what Jesus did. We begin by acknowledging our fears. We begin by acknowledging just how truly awful the situation seems. Jesus comes to his father with everything that he is feeling, every sense of this story isn't the way that I want it to be. And as he acknowledges his fears, as he lands in that space of humanness, he does something else that I think that we can do as well. He expresses his hopes. Expresses his hopes that there might be a different story. I'm so fascinated by this word, if, in the prayer that he prays. Because my early understanding of Jesus as a child is that there should be no if. He should know that there is no other story. This is the only possible outcome. This is the only possible solution to the world's problems, to our problems. Why is he asking if there's another story? Because my reading of Jesus says that he should know. And yet in this moment, it seems like he doesn't know. In this moment, in his humanity, there is a longing for a different story. God, is there any other way? Is there any other way that they can be okay? Is there any other way that they can be forgiven? Is there any other way that there can be a hope for a new world and a new story for them? Because if there is another way, I would love to know what that is. Isn't that maybe something that you and I have prayed as well? We get landed in a situation, a scenario, and we're like, God, I don't like this story. I don't want this story. I want a different story. I want you to create a different way of figuring all of this out. Why have you left me here with this burden, this moment, this relationship, this sickness, this struggle? Why have you left me in this moment of anxiety? I want a different story. Jesus does what the rest of that verse about anxiousness would ask us to do. Do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That's what he does. He comes to his father and he pours out his heart and says, I am afraid. I'm afraid because this story seems awful. It's this moment where it seems like just the awfulness of crucifixion and what it entails has started to hit him. The cost of what it is to bear the sins of the world has started to become more emotionally felt for him. And the honest expression is one of fear of, I don't want to keep going with this. I don't want this to be the story. And I hope that there is a different way. That is how Jesus approaches his anxiety. The writer to the Hebrews, this book, Hebrews, will say this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death 
and he was heard because of his reverence. How was he heard is my question. In what way was he heard? There is no different story. When I think about a prayer for me being heard, I'm like, I want a response. I want a specific outcome. And yet for Jesus, that isn't what it means. What we see after this moment of prayer, this moment of supplication, what we see is him walk back to his disciples, ready to embrace what this story looks like. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus takes that moment of anxiety and he does what I think most of us in this room would do. Most of us have done. I have done. He has this conversation with his father that acknowledges his fears. I have done that. He has this conversation with his father where he expresses his hopes. I have done that. But then he does something that I rarely do, that I struggle to do. In this moment, Jesus surrenders the outcome. In my prayers, I still maintain this distinct sense of God. I know where this story should go. I think I might be wise and I think maybe I'm even wiser than you in this respect. I know what the answer is. You should fix the story in this way. When I pray, if there is another story, I have another story in mind and I stay passionately connected to seeing that story happen. When Jesus prays that, he surrenders the potential that there is another story and he surrenders to the story that his father has for him. Jesus does this incredible thing in anxiety. He acknowledges fears. He expresses hopes and he surrenders the outcome. That is how his conversation looks. And before we wrap up the service, I'm going to invite you to sit and Aaron's going to play us a song that allows space for that conversation to take place. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.